Pastor Corey here with Heights Church. Thank you for listening to our sermon podcast. If you would like more information about Heights Church, simply go to weareheights.org or follow us on our Facebook page. If you're looking to get plugged into a church, feel free to reach out to us via our website by simply clicking contact, and we will help you find a similar church in your area. Hope the podcast serves you well, and thanks for tuning in. God's people said, amen. amen and amen. So as I was preparing to close us out in this uh, series on, on promises, uh, my study took me to uh, African-American slave spirituals. And so African-American slave spirituals or African-American slave hymns, you could say, say were songs that were uh, written during African-American slavery to uh, bring hope, to bring awareness, to bring clarity. Uh, it was a way that, was the, that those individuals would uh, lament unto the Lord. They would celebrate just the faithfulness of God. They would find hope with one another. And so I just sat for probably an hour and a half just listening to these African-American slave hymns, man. And they were they are real and they are raw and they are authentic. And as you listen to them, like you can like, you'll well up with emotion and like there's only so much you can understand, but you'll still, you can set in with them like experiencing the grief and the sorrow and the joy and the laughter. Like you kind of hit the whole gambit, don't you? Whenever, if you've ever done that. Actually, I'm going to give you homework. If you're here in the room as well as online, the homework I have for you, I want you to literally this week, I want you to YouTube African American Slave spirituals and just set in them for a little while, whether they're about Jesus or whether they're just some cats out on the yard chipping away at rocks, singing about a girl named Roxy who walks down the street, they will move you. Uh, It'll just introduce you and invite you into a culture that we most certainly in this room are not familiar with as we sit in here as the majority. Now, if I've said all that and you're like, what the heck is an African-American slave spiritual pastor? Um, Think about, you'll know this song, like Swing Low, Sweet Chariot. Anybody? familiar with that song, right? I don't sing. I'm not Jeff, okay? So I can't do that. But if you know that song, swing low, swing chariot, coming for to carry me home. Swing low, swing chariot, right? I looked over the Jordan and what did I see coming for to carry me home? A band of angels coming after me, coming for to carry me home. Swing low, sweet chariot. And so it goes on and on. But the whole purpose of the text is these recalling Old Testament scripture and the chariot that came and swept up Elijah. Elijah and swept him away and took him away in a chariot of fire. And there's this cry out. It's both biblical as well as a cry out to the north of, hey, look down here into the south and come down to us. Come down and get us and take us back home. So I would encourage you just to set in those this week. Just take 30, 45 minutes, maybe a part of your drive and just get fed a little bit this week. Well, as I was sitting there thinking about those, or listening to them, better yet, um, it kind of, I was reminded of this reality that as I said in the majority culture, as a white, middle-class American male, I am the majority-dominant culture in America, uh, most of us in this room are, that as the majority culture, I can go my whole life and I could never engage in, research, or look to a minority culture and nothing about my life would shift. I don't have to know anything about black folks. I don't have to know anything about Hispanic folks. And my life would be smooth sailing um, as it currently is. However, if you live in this country as a minority, that's not the same for you. Because if you're a minority culture, you have to figure out what it looks like to fit into 
the majority. Most certainly, if you'd like to continue advancing in your career path and so on and so forth, there's a reality there where the minority has to understand the majority, but the majority doesn't have to always understand the minority. You guys tracking with me? Is that too wordy? Okay, we're still together? Okay, I'm a little cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs up top, so if I don't make sense, just raise your hand, okay? Say, hey, just slow it down there, Pastor, okay? Take your time, okay? That's true for us, and that's something that I don't think about a lot, and, and it's clearly because I am the majority in the culture. However, I don't want to go my life not understanding the minority, so I find myself listening to things like African-American slave songs to be taught and to learn. Well, put a pin in that for just a moment. The book of Revelation, okay, more often than not, we come to the book of Revelation as the majority, as kind of this mindset of like, we know what the book of Revelation is about. And so what happens when you come into a book, the whole Bible, but specifically the book of Revelation, because we're in it, what will happen is we'll come into this book with a 21st century American mentality, and we'll try to read our life and our cultural circumstances into the text as if we were the majority, but we're not. This book was not written to us. It was written for us, but it was written to early church Christians, both Jews and Gentile Christians. It was written to them. They're the majority whenever you come to look at this book, not us. We come into it as a minority. So then it is our responsibility then to understand the culture, to to understand what's taking place here. What is the symbolism? What was happening in their culture? Who was the king? Who was ruling? Who was reigning? What was the early church experiencing? And so as the minority for us in this moment, we have to come in and we have to let go of some of our cultural identity to actually understand the book. Does that still make sense? Because we don't come in as the majority anymore. We come in as the minority. And so this book was written similar to those African-American slave him. So also the book of Revelation was written to bring hope. That's the whole purpose of the book. The purpose of the book is not written so 21st century Americans can come and say, oh, I know what that symbolism is. That's a vaccine right there. Oh, that's Joe Biden. That's who the dragon is. That's Joe Biden, right? Like, it ain't Uncle Joe, okay? Regardless of your political view, it ain't Uncle Joe, okay? Let me make sure that I'm being clear. But rather, the book was written to give hope to the early church. It was to reveal a future hope, listen to me, a future hope that was so intense and so tangible that it brought a present hope right now in the moment. That's why it was written. So they would look and they would behold and they would see the wondrous mystery of Christ on the throne. And it would be sufficient enough to sustain them in the moment. We'll get to that a little bit more in a minute. There's a big idea I have for you that is not going to be on the screen. If you're a note taker or if you're on Facebook Live, you can write this down. The big idea then for you is the future hope of the gospel is sufficient to sustain hope right now. The future hope of the gospel is sufficient to sustain hope right now. Then three points. I don't think they're on the screens either. The three points are going to be this. No more see. No more tears. Write this down which is what you should be doing right now. No more see, no more tears. Third point, write this down. Sound good? All right, here we go. Let's start with the see is no more. There is no more see. If you could put up Revelation 2 verse, or 21 verse 1 for me. Revelation 21 verse 1. John says this. He said, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the, what? Sea was no 
more. The sea was no more. I just could not get that out of my mind this week. I don't know if you're anything like me, but whenever there's times like when I'm like reading God's word and there's like something that'll just kind of pop off the page, like it's a whole different color sometimes. And I'm like, man, I got to figure that out. I want to research that. Has that ever happened to anyone else in the room? Whenever that happens, you read something, it kind of sticks out a little bit more bold, a little bit more loud than everything. Dig into it because the Holy Spirit's probably revealing something to you. You got to do a little bit of Research. What does it mean for the sea to be no more? What does that mean, Pastor? Like, I love, right? You're like thinking, like, I love the ocean. I vacate to the ocean. What is it? No more vacations in the heavens or what? No more snorkeling? Can't go scuba diving? No more paper straws? What about the turtles? Like, where are, what's happening here? I don't know if you follow that whole trend there, okay? You might not follow that. The book of Revelation has a lot of symbolism and imagery in it, and so you have to research what is symbolism and what is actual, what is actually happening in the text. The reality is we know that God is not going to get rid of the sea and all the billions of creatures that existed for millennia for his glory. That doesn't make any sense in light of creation or recreation. It doesn't make any sense in light of systematic theology. But the Bible does speak of the sea very, uh, in very specific ways all throughout the Old Testament and even in the book of Revelation. So without getting into all of it and for the sake of our team and saving them for having to put a bunch of scriptures up on the screens uh, this week, whether it being Christmas, I'll sum up some of this stuff for you. The books of Isaiah, the book of Daniel, the book of Psalms specifically reference the sea a great deal. Whenever the Old Testament talks about the sea, it'll speak of the sea and its sea creatures, whatever those were. They were, being, they were uh, going to be crushed by the Lord, crushed by the hand of God. He would come and kill the sea dragons, the Old Testament would say. The book of Isaiah says the wicked are like a raging sea. The psalmist speaks of the sea. He says the sea is like a corrupt government. It's only full of war and death and enemies. And so all throughout the Old Testament, there's all this imagery that is used for the sea. I got asked to go speak at Sacred City Church I don't know, a few years ago and got to ask to preach on Ecclesiastes. And even the, the text that I got to teach then, King Solomon, whenever he was building the temple, he would send out ships and he would send out gold and supplies on ships, but he wouldn't send just one ship. He would spread out his wealth, he said, across a plethora of ships, a, a fleet of ships, if I may, and he would send them out onto the water to ensure that the gold and the supplies got to the temple because there was a fear that the sea would destroy the ships, that the sea would take the gold and the supplies away from the temple. And so there's imagery all throughout the Bible of the sea, and it's regularly correlated with something disastrous or treacherous or difficult or hard. And so John in the book of Revelation says, the sea, which carries such strong, harsh imagery, the sea is no more. That's a big deal for them. The sea had such Terrible imagery for the first century people, for the church. What is he saying? He's saying the sea is gone. What does that mean? That means your enemies are all gone. It means the war is over. It means everything that you feared at one point is simply ceasing to exist. There is no fear anymore. The beasts of the seas have been destroyed. The treacherous waters of both sin and death and fear and anxiety, listen, in any and every single thing that could ever provoke any sort of negative emotion or experience in your life has ceased to exist. That's some promise. That's a big promise. He's saying it is no more. It's gone. That's a big promise. As I mentioned, I um, 
I woke up on Christmas Eve. I did have a, a terrible migraine. It started at 8 a.m. and did not go to bed. It did not go to. It did not stop until I went back to bed that night. I slept most of the day. I don't know. For those of you in the room that get migraines and Bastillas, you all brought me drugs. Thank you for bringing me drugs. <laughs> Thankful for you. I don't know how people function. I get like two a year, and I feel terrible the next couple of days, even afterwards. Like, it felt like there was a fork inside of my skull just scratching the inside of my skull. The light that came in underneath the door from the hallway hurt my head. It's crazy. If you don't get them, they are straight from Satan. I slept the whole day. I got out of bed twice. I came to Christmas Eve. I came to Christmas Eve. Listen to this. This is true. I came to Christmas Eve because I knew David Seaton's sermon. I was there whenever we were in the process of planning it, preparing it. I was talking to Raphael about this just yesterday. And I knew that he was going to preach, behold, I'm with you always until the end of the age. Like as I sat there with this migraine, I had 30 pounds of weighted blanket on me. It was pitch black in the room. That's all I could say to myself over and over again. This is what David was going to be preaching. Behold, I'm with you until the end of the age. Behold, I'm with you until the end of the age. Behold, I'm with you until they're just recalling that promise again and again and again and again. The second thing that I kept saying was the sea will be no more. Behold, I'm with you until the end of the age. The sea will be no more. The sea will be no more. The sea. I didn't know what I was going to preach on. I didn't know what I was going to teach on that. I didn't, I didn't know exactly what I was going to say about that, but I knew that that little line, the sea will be no more, was sufficient to sustain me in that moment of weakness because the gospel is sufficient to sustain us in our moments of weakness. The sea will be no more. Mark Hanna, bless his soul, led the song Promises. It hurt my head so bad. <laughs> It was so loud inside of my brain. I was literally sitting there with tears coming down my cheeks. And it was partially because it's true. The whole song is true. And it was partially because the excruciating pain that I was setting in in the back row. My wife's like, are you okay? I'm like, I don't actually know. (laughs) 50% worship, 50% pain. Sometimes those two things go together. And Jesus is saying, there's a day coming where they won't. The sea will be no more. You understand what I'm saying? Some people come to Christmas Eve because it's Christmas Eve and they need to check a box. Some of us come to Christmas Eve because it's the only hope that we have. Right? The sea will be no more sufficient. Is a, the big idea, the future hope of the gospel is sufficient to sustain hope right now. Future hope of the gospel is sufficient to sustain hope now. The book of Revelation was written again to the early church. As it, was, uh, written, it was written specifically to them to bring them Hope, the, the book of Revelation was actually written and penned in such a way to be read aloud. So the, the point of the book was to be um, passed around the early church, all throughout the various uh, countries and cultures that it was in, for the early church to bring them hope. That's the original intent of the book of Revelation. Again, the original intent of the book of Revelation is not for us as a majority, predominantly white Anglo culture to come in and say, I can read all my 21st century experiences into this book. I know exactly what's going to happen here. Again, I would say the vaccine is not the antichrist. It might be like a foreshadowing of an antichrist for for sure. Like your cell phone is not the mark of the beast of the 666. It's not it. If it is it, and you truly believe that, then throw that thing in the trash. Why would you hold on to it? This is the mark of the beast right here. (laughs) Yeah, you're the mark of the beast. And so, right, those thoughts, those sorts of thoughts only come whenever we try to come in as the majority and read 
into the text. That's called an eisegetical approach to reading. We read ourselves, we read our lives, we read our experience into the text. But rather, Revelation and the book of the Bible as a whole has been written for an exegetical approach. We want to exegete the text. We want information and imagery and symbolism and good truth to exit out of the text and come into us and then inform the way that we view everything. The early church, shortly after this book is penned, Revelation, will experience, I want to be as clear as I can here, the most excruciating persecution that has ever happened in the history of humanity. That's what they're going to set in as a church, right? Far worse than you need to wear a mask and socially distance. Like what's going to happen is they're going to have spears shoved through the bottom of their body to the top of their body, hammered into the ground, and burned alive in the city square. That's persecution. They're going to be put inside of big brass bulls, and they're going to be boiled alive so that their screams will give imagery as if that bull itself were alive in the middle of the party while people get drunk and have copious amounts of fornication around that bull. That's what would happen. Dancing around the fire while people are screaming inside of the bull. Like that's imagery in our minds that we can't even begin to fathom. They're going to see things happen to their spouses, to their kids, and to their friends that we literally cannot bring to mind right now. That's the persecution that the church is going to experience. And hear me say this, historically speaking, they will experience and endure all that. Listen here, because of the book of Revelation, they'll be singing hymns while it happens. Like that's the hope that the book of Revelation brought to the early church whenever they were experiencing persecution. So Jesus gives the gift of Revelation, the book, through John to his church to bring them hope, to sustain them in the moment. And so it's a future hope, like this is coming. The sea, future tense, will be no more. Everything that you fear right now, early church, will cease to exist. That's why Jesus gives this book to these people, to bring them hope, not just in the future, but for in that moment when they're watching their kids be impaled by spears and set out in the middle of the city, they can hope in Jesus. That's why it's given. That's the intent and the purpose of the book. And then the second thing that he says to them is, there will be no more tears. Do you not think that there were tears during that time? He says, there will be no more tears. Check this out. Let's keep reading. Revelation 2, or 21, verse 2 through 4. It says this. And I saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. Listen, and God himself will be with them as their God, right? If you remember from the third week of this series, God doesn't need a house where he dwells with his, what? His people, do you remember that? He will wipe away, what? Every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain, anymore for the former things have passed away. So there's a great deal of imagery that we see here in this text. Specifically, we see a city dressed up like a bride. Okay, that's weird, but it's what John saw. And so for us, we have the all of scripture, so we understand what's happening here. If you only had this book, you'd have no clue what's happening here, right? But if you think about um, all of the imagery that we've seen over the last year, 
And I know you can't recall all that, but I can refresh your memory. We spent the majority of our year looking at a series called Lest We Turn, right? Where we looked at Joshua, Judges, Ruth, which was literally about a marriage, if you remember that story. And we saw 1 Samuel. All of these books, the one thing that they all have in common is that they all reference Israel as a bride. And they all reference Israel not only as a bride, but as an adulterous bride that would turn from the one true living God. They would turn from him, lest we turn, and they would turn to all the cultural idols of their time. And whenever they did that, they saw a great deal of defeat. And so God calls out to them, and he calls them this adulterous bride, and he talks about them and their sin and how broken they are. And at the same time, while God is calling out their sin, what we see is this incredible bridegroom who is God. And he continues to do what? He continues to pursue. He continues to walk after. He continues to woo. He continues to invite them. He actually, at one point in the book of Joshua, like reinstitutes his covenant with them. If you remember this sermon, while Israel is fondling idols behind their back and in their tent, the, the, the groom, the perfect groom is standing there, creates this monument, has Joshua create this monument that says, while you're in the middle of committing adultery, I'm still willing to enter into the marriage covenant with you. That's the type of love that he has shown. And so whenever we have this imagery, what we now know, because we have the whole context of scriptures, not just some city that happens to have a veil draped over it, but it's the new Jerusalem. It's the city of God. It's God's, perfect, God's people now perfectly restored. He's just continuing to do all the things that he's ever done. He's wooing them. He's inviting them. And so for Israel, for the early church, for these Jews, and also for these Gentiles who weren't even allowed to go to the wedding, by the way, now they're all standing here. They have this beautiful imagery from John. And what it's revealing to them is that they have been made spotless, that the thing that they wanted to do themselves through religion that they could never do, the groom has done for them. Think about it. Like they've spent thousands of years trying to clean themselves up. The groom has cleaned them up. They spent thousands of years trying to present themselves perfect. Said, no, 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 no. The groom will present you perfect. Normally, it would be a father who walks you down the aisle. But in this case, the groom himself is going to walk you down the aisle in perfection. They spent thousands of years trying to get all their stuff together and follow the law and follow the 613 commandments for thousands of years. They're trying to go up. They're trying to measure up. They're trying to climb up Jacob's ladder to get there. And he says, no, 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 no. The groom comes down to you. You don't make, you don't well up enough energy in you and enough righteousness to go to him. You're an adulterous bride. He comes to you in the midst of your Adultery. So think about that, right? You have Israel who's been sitting there for thousands of years, and all they've seen is their shortcomings and their inability to get to the groom. And so for John to come in in the early church and say, the groom has come to you. Gosh, like the tears that he wipes away is most certainly due to sin, but do you not also realize like those tears of a relief? Like finally, like here's the, here's the reality. If you just sit in this promise for a minute, church, like the stress in the back of your neck will start to go away. Like if you just sit in it for a minute, the tension that is in your shoulders right now because you're so stressed out about the holidays will cease to exist. Because you recognize like I am in fact that bride, imperfect, filthy, adulterous, bride and the groom takes me as I am. I don't have to try so hard. I don't have to try to be impressive. 
I don't have to try to look a certain way. Just right as I am, he just comes and collects me. This new Jerusalem, this new city, this new bride, this spotlessness, that's me. Right? That's you. It's the promise fulfilled. Can you see that? Can you see it? Do you feel that in you? The relief that would come from this scripture for the early church? My gosh, I wish we could be in there to feel it. Like they would have just broke as this was being read aloud. The imagery would immediately hit. That's me. Church would have been wailing. Thousands of years they've been trying to measure up and to earn, and they cannot do it. He says, I will wipe away every tear. Tears that come from sin, absolutely, and I believe tears that come from the relief of the gospel knowing you don't have to keep trying as hard. I will wipe away, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things. What are the former things? The sea has passed away. It simply ceases to exist. That is the hope that we have, church. Have you ever experienced death? Think about this. Have you ever experienced death? Of course you have. You won't anymore. Have you ever experienced anxiety, depression? Ever had your heart rate just jump and race for no reason? You're just sitting at the dinner table and the kids aren't even yelling. Have you ever experienced any sort of pain, migraines, physical pain, psychological pain? You could say emotional pain if you want to be a little bit more specific. Any pain, relational pain. It is the holidays. We can all just say yes. Think about it, like all the things that cause our shoulders to have so much tense and ten- tension in the back of them will simply cease to exist. Have you ever just felt defeated? Just defeated. Like maybe you had a thought that wasn't even that big a deal that you never voiced to anyone that just never came true. That little, like, that little speck of grief that doesn't matter, even in your own life, listen, will cease to exist. There will be no pain. There will be no tears because the former things have passed away. And the beauty of that is like that future hope that's been given is sufficient to sustain us right now, which is why the third thing he says is, write this down. Write this down. Three times in the scripture he says this. Let's continue through reading Revelation 21. Write this down. And he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I'm making, okay, pay attention here. And he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I'm making all things new. Also, he said, write this down. For these words are trustworthy and true. Now, this is super interesting to me because as John is writing this, everything that we just looked at in the scripture is future tense. He will wipe away tears. There will be no more mourning. There will be no death. The sea will go away. The sea will cease to exist. But now he's writing here in present tense. He says, write these things down. He says, behold, I'm making all things new. And so you don't do that. If you know anything about any sort of writing style, you regularly don't write in both future and present tense. Yet here John is doing it. What is he saying? He's saying there is this future hope that exists out there. Listen to me. And when you put your hope in this future hope of this King Jesus and his coming back, it will sustain you right now. Like it'll make things new right now. All of the pain that you experience can be made new, anew 
right now in this moment because the future hope of the gospel is so sufficient and so heavy and so clear and so tangible that as we profess faith in this future hope of the gospel that right now it makes us new. In this moment, the future hope of the gospel makes us new right now. Now here's what happens is the enemy comes in and he tells you, well, the future hope is coming. But for now, you just need to endure. The future hope is coming, but right now, you need to set in that dysfunctional relationship. You need to set in that brokenness. You need to set in that sin. You're not good enough to get there yet. Do you know that that's what um, slave owners would tell slaves? Like one day, yeah, one day you're going to get to cross that Jordan, slave. But for right now, you better get out there and pick that cotton. That is a slave mentality to think that one day it's coming. One day I'll die and go to heaven. What did John the Baptist say whenever Jesus came on the scene? He said, behold, the kingdom of God is at hand. Or there's a future hope that brings a present hope that is sufficient for us right now. That's why he says, write this down. Take it. There's only three times in scripture that God says, write this down. Uh, One is right here in Revelation 21. The second time is whenever he's with Moses on the mountain delivering the law in the book of Exodus. And the third time is um, uh, with the prophet uh, Habakkuk. 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 I'm going to mess it up a couple times, okay? Habakkuk. And he says, write this down. Check this out. Here's what's happening. Uh, Habakkuk. If you guys have that, hopefully uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. I'll read it to you. I'll explain it to you. And if we need to read it again, we'll read it a second time. Habakkuk 2, 1 through 4. says, This is Habakkuk, the prophet, talking. He says, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me, talking about God, and what I will answer concerning my complaint and how I will respond to God. And the Lord answered me, write the vision. Make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. That means run like a herald and go tell the news. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, what does he say? Wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up, those who are egotistical. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by faith. So Habakkuk is angry. He's mad at God. He's mad at his people. He's mad at this enemy nation that keeps coming against him and having victory. Habakkuk is so frustrated that what he says is, you know what? I'll stand my ground on my own. I'll tell you what, I'll go to the watchtower on my own. I don't need an army. I don't need you. I don't need anyone else. I will stand here. I will keep watch. I will wait on the enemy, and I will defeat the enemy. Now, naturally, one man is not going to defeat a whole nation, is he? So that's not going to happen. Not this man, anyway. There's a better Habakkuk that's coming. Gospel illustration for you. And so there's a better one who's coming. But he's saying, I'm going to handle this thing all by myself. And what God does is so sweet and so beautiful because he doesn't reprimand him in any, by any means. He doesn't say that at all. But rather, what he does is he encourages him. He says, hey, just wait. Like the appointed time is coming. It hastens till the end. It will not lie to you. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, and he gets into those who are egotistical. Those are puffed up. They're not upright, but the righteous shall live forever. And he's not saying anything different here to Habakkuk than he's saying through John in the book of Revelation. He's saying what? There is a future hope. And what is it going to do? It's going to bring you hope right now. 
There's this enemy that is coming. They keep seeing victory, but profess faith in me. Believe in me. I will take out this enemy. I will reverse the curse of sin. Stand strong, right? You don't have to be in your watchtower by yourself. You don't have to await the enemy by yourself. God is just reminding him as a prophet. There's a future hope out there. I'm in control of that. I know it seems like it's taken a while. Just relax. It will come in Due time, Habakkuk is asking the same question that many of us are asking in this room and online. What is he asking? He's saying, how long, O Lord? How long do we have to experience this? How long is injustice going to happen? How long will our kingdom be defeated? How long until the fighting ceases? How long until the anguish is over? How long? And God just sweetly says to him, hey, it's going to take a bit. He says, write this down, write this imagery down. And then he tells him this, run with it. It's not a run like running from the Lord. It's a run like they would herald a message of victory. That's literally what the gospel means, evangelium. It is a gospel message, a good news message. They would herald the good news that whenever the enemy was conquered, that the king had conquered, they would run into the city gates. And he's saying, here is the imagery, write that thing down. Now what? Now herald it. Take it out everywhere. Allow that future hope to bring a present hope, not just to you, but also to everyone else around you. And in that, we're reminded that God is faithful to keep his promise. The promise of complete and total deliverance has, listen, deliverance has never changed. Not from Genesis 3, whenever God promised the seed that would crush the serpent's head until new creation or through new creation. Listen, it's the same gospel, it's the same message, it's the same promise, it's the same hope, and it's the same Savior. And it has been sufficient for thousands of years to sustain not only the Jews, not to sustain only African-American slaves, not to sustain just the Jews during the reign of Hitler, but to sustain us in this room right now, whether we have migraines or not, right? You could have the best day in the world. I'll tell you what, it is not better than the hope of the gospel. Your best day will not deliver you from your worst day because it'll just be another bad day until he returns. It's a sustaining message of the gospel. And he says to Habakkuk, take this good news, take this gospel and run with it. Share it with literally everyone. You can say, well, what does it look like to run? It literally looks like going and living on mission and sharing the gospel. But what is that actually? That's actually what it means. That's why we do missional community, right? But, 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 no, 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 but, that's it. That's what it means. You take the sustaining, hopeful, eternal message of Jesus Christ to literally everyone. Like, if you're not resting in the hope and the promise of Jesus, I would argue it's probably because you're not sharing the gospel with people that don't know Jesus. Because it's really hard to not continue to profess faith in something that you're regularly talking about. More practically, what does it look like to run? It's going to get a lot worse for you. Romans 12 says this. Romans 12, we're almost done. Romans 12, I want to read this slowly and I want us to actually set in what we are called to do as Christians. This is what it looks like to run. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, but be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Imagine being told that while you're being drug out into the city square. Be constant in prayer. 
Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. When's the last time you had someone in your home? Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty as puffed up, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, rather, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That's what it looks like to run. Could you just imagine with me for a moment? If we who are the minority spirituality in America, if we're honest, as Christians, what would our country look like if we read Romans 12 and actually implemented it as people who had a hope outside of this world? Think about what our community could look like or our neighborhood, your missional community. What if just your missional community who all profess faith in Jesus sat around and talked with language and actions that looked like and reflected Romans 12? What would the city look like? Here's what it would look like. You want to know what it would look like? It would look like a bride dressed for her groom. That's what it would look like. It would look like righteousness and beauty is exactly what it would Look like, how do we lead such lives? How can we lead a life that allows us to feed our enemy? How do I lead a life that leads me to not want to tear the head off of someone who told us we can't use their parking lot anymore? You know how frustrated I was? Oh my gosh, right? And, and literally, fortunately, I'm preaching Revelation 21 because I'm like, okay, that's a very small thing in light of the King of Kings coming back on the throne. It's really not that big of a deal. We'll be all right, right? We'll be 100% okay. It worked out. We had more people in here than we have in here all year. We have one parking issue that anyone complained about. Anyway, if you do have a complaint, you can send it to david.seaton at weareheights.org. Okay? That's his email. What can lead us to live such lives? It is the gospel. And not just the gospel in some fluffed up way, but like a very real present hope that comes from a future hope, right? This is when we read Romans 12 and you think, how do we do that? The reality is we can't do that. Like we can't do Romans 12 in and of ourselves, but that is, is that not exactly what Jesus Christ modeled whenever he came? To love his enemies, to feed his enemies, to not be haughty and puffed up, but rather to be associate himself with the lowly? Jesus has fulfilled Romans 12 because we cannot because he is the perfect, he is the spotless, he is the one that fulfills every single promise. The problem comes in our lives whenever we stop looking at what God has written down and who God has written about. And then we make it about ourselves and we try to do what the Jews did, which is we wanna measure up, we wanna paint ourselves a certain way, we wanna put on a pretty dress and look a certain way. And the reality is we cannot achieve righteousness apart from Jesus. And so Jesus fulfills this righteousness for us. And then he tells us all about it in his gospel. And the beauty of that is that there's nothing more consistent, church. There's nothing more beautiful, nothing more glorious, nothing more eternal. There's literally nothing more merciful or right than the gospel. No one else offers you anything that Jesus Christ himself has offered you because there is no other gospel. It's the only thing that's good news. Nothing else is good news. 
Everything else is look inside of yourself. You can do this. Yeah, you can do it. Just try really hard. Get into the next thing. It'll do it for you. Listen, when we take our eyes off the gospel, that's when the sea begins to rise back up around us. Begins to choke out everything that we can see, everything we think, everything we can hear. Leaves us feeling motionless and dead. We get to experience this hope because Jesus abandoned everything that brought him hope to save us. And what that means specifically is, listen, Jesus walks in perfection. We, we get that in this room. I know everyone in this room right now. I don't know everyone online, obviously. We get that Jesus walks in perfection. But do you understand that the most terrifying place in Scripture for these folks was the sea? And whenever Jesus goes to the cross, what he does in going to the cross is he allows the raging waters of the seas to crash against him. He literally enters into the most terrifying place that could have ever existed in human history. And in every single way that the Bible talks about the sea, Jesus experiences the sea in that way. Think about this. The political waters of the sea came against him, killed him, unfair trial, murdered him. The, the raging waters of war came against him as he finally put death to death. In every single tangible way the Bible mentions the sea, the dragons of the sea were slayed in his resurrection. Are you tracking? Like he fulfills even that in every single way that you could think about it. And he does so to give us hope, a beautiful hope, a profound hope. Again, a hope that is so eternal and so tangible that it doesn't just exist out there in theory somewhere, but exists right now in this room and inside of me. And that's all that we want you to see that hope is found in a promise, but it's only found in a promise because it's first found in a person. That person is Jesus. And that's who we're called to regularly profess faith in again and again and again. Amen? Cool. Let me pray for us.